Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 18th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am off to Las Vegas for the debate tomorrow. I really think Mr. Trump is sitting on some excellent arguments. I strongly suspect that he'll be turning the entire thing around with this debate. I wasn't going to say anything, but I will. If I'm elected, I'm going to have Hillary Clinton fired out of a cannon. Sad. Now, I've heard a lot that this election has taken a turn for the ugly. I've heard that about 50 times. Talk of penis size during the Republican debate alleging that Ted Cruz's dad shot Kennedy, that Heidi Cruz ain't a looker, that Carly Fiorina ain't a looker, that one of his accusers ain't a looker. Birtherism, jailing his rival, not having talked to his running mate, rigged election. Have I forgotten anything? Yes, I forgot about a hundred things. Turn, turn, turn. This thing has turned more times than if a python covered a bird song on Lombard Street. But here's the thing, and I apologize for that last one. But here's the thing. If Trump, this horrible disaster, weren't the nominee, if he were someone normal who stayed within the norms of normalcy, Hillary might not be winning. She might be losing, which if you're not a Democrat, you might not care about. But think of how she'd be losing. The election would be close. She'd either be maybe ahead by a little or behind by a little, but not blown out like Trump is. And then these WikiLeak revelations would hit and they would hurt her. Maybe you could argue they'd hurt her unfairly. Maybe there would be better coverage than there is now. There'd certainly be more coverage. But I bet a lot of the coverage, if this was all the media were paying attention to, would go beyond what the conclusion seems to be right now, which is, well, these WikiLeak dumps raise questions. So I bet the WikiLeak dumps in this hypothetical world, this untrumped world, would garner better coverage. But still, they would be hurting Hillary Clinton. If nothing else, they would hurt her because her campaign would be pushed off message and able to do nothing else but try to corral the damage from these WikiLeak revelations. And she would probably lose the election. And that would mean that the source of her undoing was a hostile foreign power trying to influence U.S. elections. And they would influence U.S. elections. You think swift boating was bad? If it weren't for Donald Trump, this election would be decided by Julian Assange and Vladimir Putin. Or at least that would be the overwhelming perception. Oh, some political scientists would come out with a showing that indicated that the ground was ripe for a Republican, and it is. Maybe they'd argue, look, it was such an uphill battle for Hillary to win. If she had won, that would mean that Democrats had won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. And that hasn't happened since the modern party system began in the 1820s. And Assange and Putin would be cackling. And the American electoral system would face not the threat of Captain Cuckoo Pants saying the election is rigged, but the election would have been rigged, if not technically rigged, torn asunder by the most nefarious men in the world. And it seems to me that the one thing denying Putin the power to win this American election is that his acolyte is taking up all the attention via wild antics and terrible campaigning. 
So to quote Mike Tyson and Michael Spinks on the eve of their prize fight, thanks, Mr. Trump. Your hedonistic incompetence was just the shield this democracy needed. On the show today, well, we'll talk about that idea that the election is rigged, and we'll examine the Ohio Yahoo who is getting more attention than Ken Bone. But first, let's consider how Hillary Clinton's skills as a campaigner might help or hinder a Hillary Clinton presidency. We'll talk to a multi-year veteran of the Clinton White House, several state departments, stints as a guy who's authored speeches that I know you've heard if you have been paying attention. Jonathan Prince is in the house to help us prep for this debate and beyond. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. If you are a critic of the media or one of these ombudsmen in training, around this time in an election, you usually say something like, oh, we've been getting so much more horse race than issues. But you know, in 2016, I long for horse race. What an elevation horse race would be. Because what we're getting is talk of a rigged election and a cascade of accusations of sexual impropriety. Well, we're not going to necessarily talk about horse race, but a debate is upon us. So let us speak with a debate prepper and political communication specialist, someone who's worked on many campaigns. Jonathan Prince is a veteran of the uh, Clinton White House, the Clinton Gore campaign. He was deputy manager for John Edwards campaign. Were you with Kerry Edwards? Were you still there then? I didn't do Kerry Edwards because you know what often happens when the nominee picks the vice president? When the vice president ran against the nominee, right. the staff for that guy are persona non grata. You got PNG'd. I was PNG'd in <laughs> Kerry Edwards. But, uh, oh, so you, then, you missed the glory I missed of the glory. John Kerry's exactly. uh, presidential exactly. run. Yeah. Well, although now I did, the, the, I was deputy campaign manager for the second Edwards race, which is the one against uh, the current nominee for president of the United States on the Democratic side and the current president. Right. And I did then work in that general election. Uh, those guys hired me to run the independent expenditure against McCain in so Obama 08. So you're a veteran. And then I worked in the Obama administration. Right. You're a veteran of the Clinton White House, but you also ran against Clinton. I'm a veteran of the Clinton White House. I did run a campaign against Secretary Clinton, but then I also worked for Secretary Clinton in the Obama administration. What did you do for her there? I ran strategic communications and public diplomacy for our envoy. So I spent a lot of time doing Middle East peace with George Mitchell and some of the other kind of big ticket issues. How's that going? 
Middle East police is something we have not achieved yet, Mike. You but you're may... not there anymore. <laughs> so, okay. So it is, it is currently not my fault. <laughs> right. Right. Whoever they get next, it'll be his fault. So here we are uh, before a debate. And I think the conventional wisdom is a couple of things. But Hillary has won the last two debates, mostly by letting Trump implode and self-immolate. Same strategy for this one, do you think she should take? Well, I mean, it is one of the oldest rules in politics, I suppose, that when your opponent is pouring gasoline on top, lighting themselves on fire, and then hiring, you know, big oxygen trunks to keep the, the, the flame going, that you don't really get in the way. <laughs> so it could be the case, though, that he comes out with a big accusation. It could be the case that Trump comes out with a usual accusation framed in a much more pointed way. And so at that point, what is the uh, calculus between taking the high road and really going after him? Well, I suppose it means, I suppose it depends what you mean by a pointed accusation. The thing about Donald Trump is his accusations can be so utterly outlandish. They can be outlandish and they're disorganized. Is he going to accuse her of being an alien? Right. No, I'm (laughs) saying what if he, you know, points to Bill Clinton's sexual past and says, point blank, Juanita Broderick was raped and you countenanced it. And he's he's disciplined enough to stop there. Well, I I think if he makes, you know, a horrible accusation about her husband, she's going to defend her husband because he's her husband and she loves him. And she's going to talk about his character and who he is and the things that that he's, you know, done over the years on behalf of women and as as a leader. But but also obviously recognize that, look, and this is by no means to countenance even the suggestion that you're making that Trump might, might attack her with. But look, he's He's had issues and he's talked about them and he's acknowledged the mistakes that he's made. And he's also not on the ballot and hasn't been on the ballot for decades. And frankly, maybe this is just me, but I find it really difficult to imagine that there'd be any uh, male candidate for president who would be being held accountable on a debate stage for whether or not his wife 20 years before had engaged in some kind of infidelity. The other side, the, our, our opponents in this election, particularly that Trump crowd, likes to suggest that anytime you you know talk about issues of sexism in this race, you're just playing the sexism card. But really, I mean, could you imagine anyone ever on a debate stage saying to to a man, you're not fit to be president because your wife cheated on you 20 years ago? It's it's nuts. It's offensive. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. And a lot about this doesn't make sense. Like his conflation of, well, Saturday Night Live lampooned it pretty well. What, what do we do with Bill Clinton's accusers? Well, they must be paid attention to. What do we do with your accusers? They got to shut up. Right. Yeah. Well, of course. Uh, what is the prep? What is the prep like, especially for a third debate? What kind of different advice are you giving for debate three after debates one and two went pretty well? If the patterns of prep that you've engaged in and the process of prep you've engaged in uh, leading up to the third debate have worked for the first and second, you're not going to change all that much. But you're going to make sure that you're prepared for exactly the kinds of things you're talking about. You know, we did prep in 1996 dating myself, obviously, but in 1996 for Bill Clinton. And it was going to be, a, there was a town hall debate. And so we were a bunch of us sitting in there in the audience. And there was some, you know, fundraising issue going on at the time. And so some of us, I have to be one of them, and there were a bunch of jokes about it afterwards. George Stephanopoulos told me it was, he had enjoyed working with me. But we made a point of getting in his face yeah. and really not treating him like the president, calling him a liar. I called him a liar. You know, he was president of the United States and I was 20-something. So I had a death wish, but I also called him a liar. Um, but just to get in his face, not because I thought he was a liar, by the way, just because you're trying to get their mindset ready for whatever can come at them. So That didn't happen, by the way. How that did, did not happen. How did uh, practice bill handle that? He handled it perfectly well. He gave me the look that we've all seen Bill Clinton give, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he explained why I was wrong. 
And, you know, he, he's, look, he's not a guy who generally loses his temper, loses his cool. He's interested, actually, unlike Donald Trump, he's actually interested in explaining to even his biggest critics what his intentions are and what he thinks. He's not a guy who really loses his temper. So a lot of what you're trying to do is just make sure that whatever happens in the debate is something they've been through in mm-hmm. one way or another. Is debate prep different when your candidate is trailing and needs to make a big score versus when your candidate, we think that, let's not use the phrase, has the election in hand, but is certainly leading and is quite likely to win? Like in any calculation, you increase risk when you need a greater return. Yes. Right? So that that's true in debates too. That doesn't mean, however, that even if you're feeling comfortable, you want to be utterly safe. You want to find – this. Is, I mean this is the, really the trick of these debates all – yeah, they'll have big audiences. But what really matters about the debate is what takes hold afterwards in the public consciousness. Because look, we've still got weeks to go before the election. And so the story of the election, you want to ensure that the story of the election going forward is impacted by the debate in some way that allows you to continue to make the mark you want to make. And so they know what their message is. They know what they've been trying to deliver. They're going to look for some sharp ways to kind of continue to make that contrast. Now, it may be because this is the campaign that Donald Trump is running, that the point that they want to make coming out tomorrow night is once again that this guy is simply unfit to serve. Um, And fortunately, he's helping them make that point. So Yeah. So she's done pretty well on the temperament issue. She's done pretty well. I mean, he's given her a lot to work with. If she wanted to, he could have she could have gone on and on about how bad his 45 percent tariff is. But that doesn't seem to be what she's emphasizing. And she seems to be doing. I mean, it's a little like, you know, Dianu in uh, Judaism, which is the the song that they sing around Passover, which uh, the, the chorus is this word, Dianu, would have been sufficient. You yeah. thank God, you know, parting the Red Sea and like giving us the Ten Commandments, it would have been sufficient. If I had had a candidate who was temporarily unsuited to be president of the United States, it would have been sufficient. If I had a candidate who had no understanding of, you know, the nuclear triad, it would have been sufficient. If I had a candidate who nothing about running for office, it would have been sufficient. There's a little Dianu going on with the multitude gifts that Donald Trump has given us in terms of his insufficiency as a candidate or potential president. If he had groped one woman, two women, <laughs> three women, and that, now we're rivaling the number. It would of, not have been sufficient for those women, by the way, but yes. it would have been for more evidence about his unfitness for office. Yeah, and I now know, we're rivaling know, the number of plagues yeah. of Israel, by the way, exactly. in terms of the accusers. Um, okay, but now let's take it from the other side. They're advising Donald Trump and he's, um, you would think, getting more and more desperate. So he needs his risk and reward calculus is what it is. But he's who he is and he doesn't seem to have shown the ability to really concentrate on any one or two things. So what can you do if you're Donald Trump to... uh, given the limitations of Donald Trump, to try to make this debate work for you. So campaigns generally, and debates in particular, are a lot of game theory, right? You're trying to figure out what you want to do, and you're trying to figure out what they're going to try and do, and how you make sure you get done what you want to do in the context of what they're trying to do. Now, you tell me at this point how to get in Donald Trump's head. I'm being serious about that. I don't really know at this point what they want out of this campaign, let let alone this debate. So we know that he's generally an angry guy. We know that he's generally a sore loser. We know that he generally is offended when people don't take him as seriously as uh, he in his, in his own little twisted view of himself thinks he ought to be treated. I don't know which of those or which combination of those, you know, character traits is going to show up and what he wants out of That's it. That's right. It's, so, he's thin-skinned. It's easy to push his buttons. But do you even try at this point? And, you, and again, what does he really want here? Is he just... I mean, it may also be possible because he's so detached from reality that he does believe there's some alternate universe in which he's going to win. And there's this secret horde. His secret ISIS plan is being held by his secret supporters. Yeah. 
it's liberating in that you can go into the debate determined to be your best self. Yeah. She should be prepared to, you know, as he creates opportunities for his own personality to show through, to let, you know, a thousand flowers bloom on the personal scorched earth of Donald Trump's personality landscape. <laughs> I'd like to garden. I'd like to tend that garden. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I want to ask you a couple questions because you're well situated to talk about this. Um, I think even if Hillary Clinton wins, and she has, in my estimation, a 90-something percent chance of winning, you know, we'll be – I don't know that people will say that, you know, she's an electrifying speaker. She herself says she's not that kind of candidate. But – don't you need or do you need how much of those skills do you need the power of the bully pulpit, the power of persuasion through your words and rhetoric? How much are those essential to governing? It is important to communicate well. There are a lot of ways to communicate well and more than there have ever been, right? So for a long time, yeah, it was kind of the ability to give a stirring speech that grabbed an audience was certainly one of the most powerful tools the president had in the kind of communications arsenal. But even then, it wasn't the only tool. And today, it is by no means the only tool, right? Flip it a second. Let's talk about Bill Clinton, right? Mm -hmm. So Bill Clinton, everyone goes down in history as a great communicator. You know, some of Bill Clinton's most successful speeches, and I'd probably get in trouble for saying this because having worked on some of them, were States of the Union. Those States of the Union addresses were never designed to be all kinds of soaring rhetoric. They were often, they got made fun of for being kind of laundry lists, but in part what they were, were really detailed prescriptive policy agendas about things that were on people's minds. And people loved them because of that. It wasn't the words he used, it was the policies. <laughs> right. And not just, that, not just because he clearly laid them out, but yeah. because of what they embodied. Yeah. yeah, the policies yeah, responded. That, yeah. And that's part of communication. I also think that there's a kind of speech that you never give on the trial that presidents give. You know, we join them from the Oval Office and they look into the camera and they're sitting at the desk. And usually these are when terrible things are going yep. on. But Hillary Clinton might actually be really good at that. I, I suspect she'll be fantastic at it, to be honest. Yeah. So she I mean, might I, do more I think, of those. I think in moments of real national unity, whether, God forbid, it's around national grief or success or opportunity, she's going to be very, you know, people can be very surprised. I think she's a good communicator. I don't think she's good at reading an audience or with an audience. I think Trump's good with reading an audience and pleasing his audience, but is actually a terrible communicator. Trump's great at pleasing his audience. It's just you have to think about, you know, who, who he's trying to please and how. Yeah. But it does seem that compared to Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and dare I even say George Bush, there is one tool, that one tool in her arsenal, the rousing rhetoric, uh, speaking before a crowd, getting people pumped up that she doesn't have. I don't know how important it but, is. So, Mike, here's the thing about that. I actually think what you're describing is something that people like about her. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing. They don't notice it in a partisan context. So right now we're seeing her, and we've spent 18 months or whatever it is with her in a political context and a partisan context. One thing that is striking about Hillary Clinton, almost more than any other politician that I can think of, uh, you know, certainly the last 30, 40 years or so, is the difference between public perception of her in a governing context and in a political context. People like her when she has the job. She had the best numbers in the country when she was Secretary of State right, for a while. Right. She had amazing numbers when she was Senator from New York. When she's president, I think She's going to get down with serious business of governing. I think people will like that and respond to it as they have before. Yeah. So this is what I wanted to ask you about the WikiLeaks. You've been in really small campaigns with a couple of people. You've been in a White House. There is this cottage industry of really discussing what are 
you know, very fine details. Should she make this joke? And four emails go back and forth on whether she should make a joke, you know? Should she stage this photo op which shows her and Chelsea interacting? And I suppose either people who want to do her political harm or are ignorant are amazed that this level of discussion goes in over a joke. Does that seem amazing to you? No, it doesn't seem amazing at all. It seems like, you know, anything else is malpractice. Politics is in part a constant, you know, cost-benefit analysis, a constant risk-reward analysis is what we were talking about about the debate earlier. What What's the upside? What's the downside? How compelling is this picture or this statement or this you know, interview going to be to make the case for this end that we want to achieve? Or how susceptible is that picture, joke, interview, whatever? How susceptible is that to being hijacked by the opponents of this thing we want to achieve? That's really what you're looking at all the time. So if you like, and you have six staffers under you, you want them to be debating pretty much sure. every public utterance that you want to think. Apart. Yeah, you want to think it all through. Yeah. Oh, the candidate's got a photo op. It's some military plan. Oh, should he wear a helmet or not? Yeah. Well, the answer, Governor Dukakis, is no. You should not put a helmet on in the tank. Yeah. And if the WikiLeaks of that came out, and if he decided not to wear a helmet, maybe we'd be saying, look at all this discussion on a helmet. How stupid. Yeah. yeah. Doom the guy's campaign. Exactly. Jonathan Prince is too many, uh, too many credits to list a veteran of many campaigns. But I'm here just because of campaigns. Yeah. A White House or two. And he actually is a, an executive on Spotify. And I'm going to give him a plug. What's the Spotify podcast? Check out Clarify. Spotify.com slash Clarify. You don't say podcasts, do you? It has a podcast component. It's got a bunch. There's video components. There's podcast components. There's some issue explainers. It's all about issues with cool artists, all talking about issues that are important to them. It's pretty cool. Jonathan Prince likes music more than politics. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And now the spiel. Donald Trump is saying the election is going to be rigged because he knows in the key moments before the final decisions are made, Donald Trump did a walkthrough in the election's dressing room while it was changing before the all-important bathing suit competition, and he has seen some things that can't be unseen. Now, the governor of Maine, Paul LePage, who has all the tact of Trump without glowing testimonials from Scott Baio, also says of his own state, which elected him twice, you can't trust him. The Democratic Party insists on not having IDs. And will people from the cemetery be voting? Yes, all around the country. Uh, the media and, and the Democratic Party want everybody to vote whether they're citizens or not. Now, the Secretary of State in Maine, Matthew Dunlap, says that voter fraud is extremely rare. They have come across two attempts in the last 10 years, and in both cases, the attempts were thwarted. But Dunlap's a Democrat. Of course he's going to say that. You have to trust the governor, the duly elected governor, the man withstanding to say, I don't think the elections in the state of Maine or in the United States are legitimate. Oh, well, that was Paul LePage. 
the man who lives in the governor's mansion, but maybe shouldn't. LePage's rages aside, there is little credibility to these wild claims of vote rigging. Though, let's be fair, stolen elections have long been a specter raised by the left. I've seen Bill Moyer's specials on it. I've listened to Democracy Now! segments on it. I've read the Nation magazine writing about it. Which is to say our voting system is old. It doesn't have a great paper trail. Donald Trump is fomenting, let us say, disquiet. He is really embodying Jeb Bush's idea that he is the chaos candidate. But I detect an extra disquiet among those who will not stay quiet. In fact, among those who would be out of a job if they were quiet, the news media seems to me to be saying that this, this talk of vote rigging, is fundamentally different from all the other terrible Trump talk because this threatens the very foundations of democracy. But what, birtherism didn't do that? That cast the presidency as illegitimate. And that wasn't a thing that could happen in the future. That was a lie about a thing that didn't happen in the past. Is election rigging more a thing to bemoan and be fearful of than Trump's stated desire to jail his rival? I think fueling the fear, fueling many fundamental fears, is that it's unknown. And into the chasm of the unknown, I have noticed, has stepped one particular voter, a very useful voter. His name is Steve Webb. He's from Fairfield, Ohio. Steve Webb was quoted in the Boston Globe saying, Trump said to watch your precincts. I'm going to for sure. I'll look for, well, it's called racial profiling. Mexican, Syrians, people who can't speak American. I'm going to go right up behind them. I'm going to do everything legally. I want to see if they're accountable. I'm not going to do anything illegal. I'm going to make them a little bit nervous. Webb was mentioned on CNN State of the Union, and his quote made it into a lot of the cable shows and most of the election podcasts I listen to. Here's 538 Keeping It 1600 and Fusion TV. Quote, I'll look for, well, it's called racial profiling. I'll look for Mexicans, Syrians, people who can't speak American. The official language of a country is, of course, American. I want to see if they are accountable. I'm not going to do anything illegal. I'm going to make them a little bit nervous. I think of Steve Webb and his call to follow the precepts of the American language and presumably American way of life as a scary outlier. Steve Webb's a little like the Willie Horton of this campaign. Remember, Willie Horton did do horrible things during his furlough. And Steve Webb, who we called, he hasn't called back, is certainly laying out an election day that could make a Southern Ohio poll goer quite nervous. But does this mean widespread intimidation? Does this mean clashes at the ballot box? Does this mean we should expect Trump's loose talk to translate into firm fists? It may. I can't say it won't. Maybe there will be some examples of voter intimidation here or there. Hey, maybe the firebombing of the Republican offices in Orange, North Carolina is already a part of this phenomenon from the other side. But I don't have much fear. Most polling places have a cop stationed there. And most cops, even members of the Trump-endorsing fraternal order of police, will not allow much nervous making to go on in the name of accountability verification. It's definitely human nature to perceive a threat and when you hear a threat to react to it. But I say we should treat Steve Webb-type statements like he was an internet troll. Or maybe better, let's think of a terrorist. We can't discount the terrorists are up to mayhem, but we do give them too much power if we quake in fear, i.e. if we allow them to terrorize us. Every once in a while, there's an eruption from a Trump supporter, or in the case of Corey Lewandowski, a Trump campaign manager. And we do spend a fair amount of time fretting about how ugly and beyond the norms it all is. And it is beyond the norms. But the threat to democracy is not that a few Trump supporters will try to commit acts of violence. 
The threat is that many of them will unite to elect a candidate in an unrigged election. And it looks like, at least on the presidential level, that is not going to happen. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is going to eavesdrop on Canadians just to see what they're up to. Just producer Chris Berube is that Canadian. And he sees Mary Wilson furtively glancing over her newspaper. And he says, it's going to take a subterfuge than that to trip me up. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He notes that Mexicans and Syrians not only can't speak American, they probably can't speak Mexican or Syrian either. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, will do everything legally. It'll be all legal-like, see? Because it would be a shame if someone were to say, slip on a wet patch. <laughs> the gist. We found Steve Webb on Facebook, and his avatar is Hulk Hogan. And we do see the resemblance. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>